0: Welcome to the Seven Day Work Week, the Labor After Labor podcast. This week we are talking about labor. I'm Em.
1: And I'm Liz. Uh, today we are starting with a quote from Miss um, Nicole Christensen. Um, she's not a particularly famous person, but she has um, a blog, and the uh, title of this one was called I Had an Epidural and I Was Told I Didn't Actually Go Through Labor. Um, and her quote is, Uh, Pregnancy, labor, delivery and motherhood is not a competition. How about we start uplifting others as opposed to shaming? Um, And so we did talk a little last week about mom shaming and these ideas of like one size fits all ways to parent um, or uh, provide childcare. And so today we're kind of continuing that thread and talking about how that relates to labor itself. So yeah, Emily, when you heard this quote um, about uplifting others as opposed to shaming them, what kind of thoughts came to mind for you?
0: I personally really liked this quote when we chose it because um, this podcast itself, we're trying to be um, non-confrontational and we're trying to stop the mom shaming or at least bring it down a notch. And um, I think it's, a huge problem when it comes to labor and delivery, I think women have a lot of opinions on it, and I feel that women who do choose to get an epidural or do choose to maybe get a scheduled c section or anything else, they're seen as lesser or as they're seen as not truly as the blog post said, not truly going through labor because they didn't experience the pain and the suffering and the struggles and That's not fair. Um, Every woman, despite however it happens, uh, goes through labor or experiences labor and birth. And you can't say one is better than the other. You can't say I'm superior because I went through, you know, 18 hours of grueling labor, but you just laid on a table and had a C section. You know, you're less of a mom or you're. That's terrible. That's terrible. We're all going through something beautiful and. Um, sometimes traumatic, sometimes scary, sometimes wonderful. I mean, everyone has their own birth story and you can't pit each other against each other and say one is better. One is lesser. What do you think?
1: Yeah. And I love this idea that you bring up about like the way it makes people feel because it's like, I, I had read this, um, this British health guy. I I'm forgetting his name now. I can put it in the show notes, but um he he advocated for so-called quote unquote natural birth, you know, without any kind of pain management, because it um, if you didn't have it, there was a, a feeling of alienation. Uh, okay, well maybe that's created by a society that continuously tells women that their birth isn't real or their labor isn't real. Uh, maybe I feel alienated because the society has created those conditions, not because. Uh, pain managed labor is in and of itself necessarily alienating. Um, and so I think the issue is, co- you know, correcting a narrative around that, uh, you know, prizing and privileging some sorts of pregnancies and labors over others. Um, and, and that's the job to be done. I, I, I have multiple family members who um, are very vocal about being anti epidural. Um, and I was, you know, I was just told yesterday that, that I cheated um, and I was a cheater because I had an epidural, which really made me feel, uh, you know, like less of a woman and less of a mother. And it was like, and it's it's not fair and it's not right. Um, and so I just think that, and that's not to throw shade on people who have natural birth, but it's to say, don't throw shade on each other. Uh, we got enough problems in our society um, as, as women without, uh, you know, tearing each other down because we didn't make the same birth plan as as another person um, from a different generation or a different culture because all of these things are very generational and cultural. Um, So yeah, I, I, I think that um, it's really easy to judge people for not doing the same thing you did in general. Um, And so I like that we we're starting this quote with this kind of anti-shaming attitude because uh, I just, I think, Life's hard enough. (laughs) Let's let's not be tearing each other down for the choices that we make.
0: Absolutely. Yep. One hundred percent agree. Do you want to talk about birth stories really quick, and then we'll get into everything else? Okay. Do you want to start, or do you want me to start? You start. I start. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Alrighty. So um, first of all, I my story is a little different. I had um, gestational hypertension, which is a little different than. preeclampsia, but it can become preeclampsia. So it's pretty much when your blood pressure, I looked it up, when your blood pressure is 140 over 90 in women whose blood pressures were previously normal before 20 weeks. So up until, let's see, I want to say 35 weeks or so, um, my blood pressure was fine, totally fine. And then, uh, one day I was at work and I wasn't feeling well. And I went to my OB and she took my blood pressure and it was like 200 over hundred. Like it was something crazy. It was crazy. Um, and she pretty much told me, well, today was your last day of work. You're going to call your boss. You're going to go across the street to the hospital and get monitored for a couple hours. Um, and I was on bed rest. I was on continuous monitorings every week. I went in and got like heart monitor hooked up and they watched her and they made sure she was active and my blood pressure wasn't high and whatever. So yeah, my pregnancy was a little different. So I got induced on my 37 week mark. So I don't even know what day that was. I wrote it down, July 1st. (laughs) July 1st at 4 p.m. Uh I went into the hospital for a scheduled induction. I was only one centimeter at this point, like hardly dilated heart, like, I don't think it was a face at all. Like, it, I mean, we're starting more or less from zero. And, uh, up until this point, she was also transverse, which means she was sideways. So we were also very concerned that I was going to end up having a C-section because she was sideways the whole time. So anyway, um, I got there 4 PM. Uh, they started cervidil, which is a cervix, uh, ripening, thinning agent. Uh, mine was the pill. I think they can do it orally too, but, uh, they stick a little pill up your hoo-ha and (laughs) sorry, I have a, I have a baby, so it's a (laughs) hoo-ha. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they started that around 4 PM and I got my IV, which it took them three times to do my IV. I just want to throw that out there three times. My whole arm was bruised. It was terrible. But anyway, so I did three to four rounds of that. And they wanted to do it at 4 p.m. because the thought is like, oh, we'll just give you servidal over the night and you're not going to feel any contractions. You're just going to like slowly ripen and, you know, whatever. No, I immediately got contractions. They were back to back. They weren't like full blown contractions. They were like heavy period cramps. Um, but Mike and I, so I took a lap around the ward and we were kind of walking around trying to get things moving or whatever. And in the ward, they have. Things like screens up in the ward and you can like watch other people's labor. I don't know, it's kind of weird. But I was watching mine and it's just like dee deep, dee deet de- Like it was constantly spiking. And I'm like, yep, that, yep. So because of that, um, they asked me if I wanted pain meds, and I said yes, because I wanted to sleep. And they gave me Delaudin, Delaudin, I say it wrong every time. Um, and a fun side effect of that, it's an IV, um. Pain medicine. And a fun side effect of that is nausea. So I, my whole labor, which was 31 hours, I was throwing up the entire time.
1: That's the most awful thing I've ever heard in my life.
0: <laughs> Seriously. It was terrible. Like, you know, labor's terrible. But the fact that you're like dry heaving during contractions or dry heaving during pushing. Oh, and the sad thing is, I read about it and I'm like blaming Diladna. I'm like, oh, it's bad it's that some women just get nauseous during pregnancy. Like that's, or during labor, that's just what it is. And it's like, Oh God, next time. But anyway. Um, okay. So we did that for a while, 8 AM the next day, I was like one to two centimeters. Nothing really happened. They started Pitocin. Um, and then about an hour or so after they started Pitocin, I was like, Nope, I want an epidural. Like, I wasn't getting super strong contractions, but I was just like, nope, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. So I got the epidural. It was wonderful. Anyone who is possibly scared of an epidural, don't be. Um, It's really, the idea of an epidural is a lot scarier than the actual epidural, but that's my opinion. So take it, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Like you get numbed. It doesn't matter. Anyway, so fast forward. So that was 8 a.m., 10 p.m. that night. I was about three centimeters. And uh, my doctor came in. He's like, you're not going anywhere. You're not doing anything. I was like, yeah, I know. So they did a membrane swipe, which is where they try to like, they go in between your cervix and the bag and they try to get things moving. Um, Didn't feel it because obviously I had the epidural. Um, and then 12 PM got checked again and they were going to break my water, but when they checked me, they broke my water and I was still at three meters. but water broke. So that was great. Then July 3rd at 2 AM, all of a sudden I call my nurse and I'm like, I'm not feeling good. I'm like, whatever, you know, I'm feeling more pain. And, uh, she calls in the anesthesiologist and he made me feel bad. He's like, you have the button why aren't you hitting the button? The button just increases your epidural. Like that's all you need. And I said, no, like, this is like, I'm feeling a lot, like terrified that my epidural is wearing off because you hear those horror stories. And uh, so he's like, fine, fine, fine. And he gives me another shot of whatever the medicine is. Hmm. And he's like, I'm not gonna keep coming back here and giving you a shot. You came in once, dude. (laughs) You, you You weren't even the one that placed my epidural. And then you come in and be like, I'm not going to keep coming in to give you medicine. Like, okay, but whatever. And the nurse was like, who, the nurse was amazing. Oh my God. I loved her. But she was like, let me just check you. And she checked me and she's like, okay, you're 10 centimeters. You're ready to go. Let's do this. And I was like, I knew like something felt different. So yeah. And then uh, it was really funny. Like things were happening really quickly. Um, I think I pushed for like 45 minutes or so. But she was born at 256, so like 56-ish minutes or whatever. Um, And my doctor this whole time is like, I think in his head, he's like, this is going to be a C. This is going to be a C. This is going to be a C. Like, she's not progressing. But he never said anything to me, and I greatly appreciate that. However, all of a sudden, they start calling him, and I hear him on the other line. And they're like, hey, she's, you know, you got to get here. And he's like, no. And she's, they're like, nope, you got to get to the room right now. And they told me to stop pushing, which is the worst feeling in the world. And all of a sudden he comes running in and they're changing the bed and he's like getting dressed and he's like, don't push, don't push, don't push. <laughs> like it was so funny because <sighs> I think in his head, he was just like, this is going to be a C-section. We're not going to do, you know, whatever. And then, yeah, so 45 ish, 50 minutes later, she was here. Um, and that was it. Two fifty six a.m. Charlie was here on July 3rd. But. Yeah, long labor, 31 hours, but yeah. So I mean eh. Did she self-correct the transverse position? The week before she was due. Okay. Or the week before I was gonna be induced. So 36 weeks she flipped. I was like, thank God. Yeah. And I was um we can talk about this like in another podcast because I think it's pretty interesting, but I was actually going to a chiropractor for that exact reason. Um she was like adjusting my hips and my pelvic bone and my back to create more space so she would flip. And okay. so it maybe worked. It I think it did. Huh. I mean, I don't know, but yeah. So that was fine. That was that was my very long, but hey, I you know, in the end, well, I wanted to. Do was how many hours? 31. Yeah. <laughs> very long. And uh, I did look it up and the average time. For a induction, or actually, let me, let me read it because it's not even the induction. It's the early labor process. Uh, the average time for early labor is 24 hours for an induction. So you can be in like the, I don't even know if they go by centimeter wise, but like the early, not serious, you can still talk contractions for 24 hours. So 31 hours in that sense, okay, I mean, that seems on par. It was long, but on par. So, okay, tell me about yours. Yeah, there's
1: so many things I want to talk about with what you said. Okay, but I'll talk about mine briefly. So I, uh, I was induced um, at 41 weeks, um, and it was something that I hadn't planned on doing um, and I didn't really want to do. Um, but my doctor told me that all of the complications rise at 42. And that combined with the fact that she was on call that day, um, had us schedule the induction for when we did. And then of course I went into labor like two hours after her shift ended. So I didn't, I mean, not I went into labor, I was ready to push two hours after her shift ended. So I didn't even get her for the delivery moment. So I kind of made this medical intervention decision based on something that didn't even end up happening um so i i am regretting a bit my decision to induce especially after some of the research i've done which we'll talk about but um at any rate i showed up at my scheduled time at five in the morning with my bag packed as if i'm on vacation and just arriving (laughs) somewhere i was not you know in labor or anything and um so, uh, you know, I had a pretty similar process to you. I didn't have um, Cervidil. I had Cytotec, um, which they, the only real difference with that in Cervidil is that they can give it every four hours. So they gave it to me once. And I have to say, it was extremely painful them giving me that because they can't lube up. So they're basically entering you raw <laughs> with this pill and they have to leave it on the opening of your cervix, which I was not even one centimeter so my cervix is not only not open but it's um not facing outward um there's a medical term for that that i can't remember but it's it's back so it's not facing out do you know the term effaced yes okay so i'm i'm not effaced right is the way that it said so they've got to like maneuver back in there and so i'm in all of this pain from the exam um and from them placing the cytotext. so it doesn't kick in the first time then they do it another four hours later and it kicks in. Um, shortly after that, they start me on Pitocin and then I'm feeling, um, contractions hard. And so that's one of the, you know, kind of arguments against induction is that Pitocin, uh, creates, um, more intense contractions than natural labor. So it's more painful, um, which, and then, you know, natural birth, uh, uh, people will then say, which then makes you more likely to have an epidural as if an epidural is writ bad, Um, which I don't agree with, but, um, so I, I was planning on getting the epidural anyway. Um, so I'm feeling the contractions. And then my doctor had another intervention that she did, which was the Foley bulb. I've since researched other people's experience with this. So in, in kind of, um, unlike the CDC, the Foley bulb is described as, as, uh, not painful, just giving pressure. That's also what my doctor said, that it was just pressure. Um, And I've read women saying it's pressure. Um, But I've also read women saying, this is the most painful part of my entire labor process and it was awful and it definitely was for mine. I was crying the entire time from the second it was inserted. A Foley bulb is essentially a catheter with a balloon on the end of it that they insert into your cervix and then pump with saline water. And so then they pump it up. So it's larger than your cervical opening. And then the idea is that it sits in there and that mechanical process will make your cervix expand and then it will fall out. Um, What actually happened for me was that it wasn't making it expand. It wasn't making it fall out. And so the, they taped it to my legs. So any movement of mine was supposed to jostle my cervix. And so every time I moved, even in the slightest, it was excruciating pain. And then the nurse kept yanking it to try and make it come out. So I'm getting, she's like this giant, like strong woman yanking this thing. It's not coming out. It's awful. I'm weeping. Um, And so then she eventually was like, okay, I'm talking to the doctor because this is, you're in too much pain. This is not how much pain this is supposed to be. um, So I got to talk to the doctor. And I just think it's so interesting where it's like, the doctor orders the, the, the intervention and then leaves and the nurse has to deal with me. Right? right. It's kind of fucked up. Um, so she like goes and talks to the doctor and has to kind of convince and embellish and create this narrative of how much pain I am in to convince the doctor. And, um, what she ultimately does is let part of the saline out. And she didn't tell me this. You know, she told me she was letting all of the saline out and going to remove it. She let half of the saline out and then gave it one final yank and pulled it out. And so that dilated me two centimeters. So we got one centimeter out of that. I was at Mm. just under one before. So we got one centimeter out of that. Um, And then I did start to progress, as they say, in, in labor. I did start to open up more. Um, And a face and uh, ripen, all of that started happening. So I do think it did move labor along, but I, it was the worst part by far. And um, my contractions were bad during the entire thing, you know, and it's like interesting. You brought up the monitor. Isn't there this way in which the monitor made the contractions real where it's like you're looking at it and you're like, I know I'm feeling a contraction, but when I see it on there and the little number associated with it, it's like, see, that's real and made it like legible both to my husband and to you know what I mean it's like yeah I just think it's really interesting because like that charting on the screen and making it medically quantifiable made me feel like I really was in labor which is the strange thing that I think the entire medical complex does of making things that we experience real it's like that made it real um But so I was having very close, like one and two minutes apart. And they were very intense contractions. Um, And shortly after that, I decided I wanted the epidural. And again, it was like this slight convincing process. Like, are you sure you're ready? And it was like, yes, um, I've been in a lot of pain. And the nurse was like my advocate where she was like, she's been bearing down a lot on this pain. She's really been a trooper. She's been walking around. She's doing everything she can. And I was like, I finally, and I I have no idea what time it was. It was like evening, afternoon. It must have been evening because then that nurse was gone, and it was a new nurse who actually Emily went to our grade school. My nurse. Oh. Yeah. Our grade. So we, t- no, she's like, she was like eight or nine years younger than us, but um, she had all of our teachers. So <laughs> it was funny. That's so, really funny. I know. So she was she was great, and we got we like talked about Miss School Newick for. A period of time who was still there when she was there, um, which is wild cause she was an old lady. But, um, anyways, um, so I got the epidural and it was a good epidural. Everyone kept saying, because my legs were completely numb and I could not feel them or move them. And I, felt nothing. Um, which as we know from my family member means that I cheated through my labor. Um, and that I'm, you know, less of a woman and have less bonding experience with my child because I wasn't in pain uh, as, as we all know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I got through the night and once we started, um, I started pushing, it took less than an hour. Um, and she was out. Um, and it was, uh, you know, Every, every mom knows it was, like, the most exciting thing ever to have her and see her. Hmm. Um, I know.
0: I'm, like, getting teary. <laughs> it, it, it's so cool. It's, like, and it's so funny. I really, like, I'm one of those people that watches birth stories. Like, you know, a YouTuber, like, oh, watch my birth. You know, whatever. I'll watch them. And I hysterically sob when I watch those things because it's so sweet. But when Charlie was here, I think I was just so tired like there's pictures, she's just on my chest. And I'm just like, like, I look like I'm asleep. (laughs) I'm just like, I don't cry. Nothing. Mike thought I was going to be a blubbering, blubbering baby and uh, nothing. I was just like, hi, baby. Welcome. Like, thank you for being out of me. Finally. Like, yeah.
1: When you've been doing it 31 hours, it's like, yeah, I'm ready for you to be out. Well,
0: I mean, you had 29. So don't you know, it's there was no shortage like not saying I did 31, like you did 29, that you could do 10. It doesn't matter. Like labor is labor. It's hard. It's exhausting mentally, physically, emotionally. So yeah, to poo poo on anyone's labor story, like, "Mm." but I jotted down a few things and I want to know what you jotted down from my story, but I thought it was really interesting um, when you talked about pain narrative and having to convince the doctor. Because as you said that, I remembered that I had a similar issue because, you know, it was only three centimeters at that point. And I'm like, I, I want an epidural. And the studies show that the earlier you get an epidural, the more likely you are to have a C-section because epidurals can slow down your labor. So, yeah, there was a huge... Uh, the nurse was on board, but I remember to get the doctor's approval or the anesthesiologist, I don't know how it works, to get their approval was a little bit of like a a pushback. So, and that's, if a woman is in pain and she says, I'm done, I'm out, I want the epidural, or she goes in and is just like, I want it placed as, like, as soon as I possibly can.
1: No shame in that. Yeah, and I think the reason for mine was like, I, there's... When you have an epidural, you you can't move. So the idea of those like traditional, truthful, real midwife tactics of moving around, changing position, all of these things to get the baby to move down, um, those are all real and you can't really do them once you have the epidural. So that I completely understand. So that was, I think, the reason for the pushback with mine where it was like, have you reached the point where... Um, you really can't handle the pain anymore. And so therefore, it's like a cost benefit analysis where we're losing, um, you know, the ability to naturally move her down because you're going to sit and that's going to stop labor um, in some way. Of course, labor's also being um, created through Pitocin and, you know, the administration of that um um, you know, uh, what's it called synthetic oxytocin, where you have this hormone that naturally is what creates, uh, labor being artificially inserted into you. So it's labor is happening. Labor doesn't stop because you lay down, but, um, I guess that's all to say that. So there was a real reason. Um, and, and so what, what I think is interesting, I found in my research, um, and I, maybe you have numbers on this too. Um, what I found was that today in the United States, 71% uh, seventy-one percent of women get epidurals, um, and which is about a ten percent increase from two thousand eight. Um, and you're nodding your head, so you had similar numbers. Yep. Yeah. Um. But what I found really interesting is that, um, in the UK, which we often think of as a very similar kind of um, cultural landscape to us, you know, it's another Westernized uh, English-speaking country, um, the current epidural rate is thirty-one percent. So there are way less women in the UK getting epidurals than in the United States. So it makes sense that there's less pushback for us. Um, actually, March of this year, March of 2020, um, there was something of a scandal um, because uh, the NHS, which is the National Health Service in the UK, is um, kind of under fire because it seems that women are routinely getting denied epidurals. Um, so one article was, uh, it published in the guardian on March 4th and it was titled, I asked three times for an epidural. Why women, uh, why are women being denied pain relief during childbirth? Um, and, uh, there was another one, women in labor refused epidurals, government fines. And that was the BBC on the same date, March 4th. Um, and so what these women are saying is that they're asked, they're asking their midwives for epidurals and the midwives are telling them It's too early. It's too late. Um, or the anesthesiologist isn't available and women are reporting in kind of droves that they're, they're asking for them. Epidurals are in their birth plans and they're sort of being told that it's not possible at this moment. Um, and from what I found and what my doctor told me is that that's a myth. The idea that it's too early for an epidural is bullshit. The idea that it's too late for an epidural is also bullshit, that all of these anesthesiologists are trained to be giving epidurals during major contractions. Because a lot of women decide, they, they think they don't want one, and then they decide, no, this is too painful. Please give me my epidural. And so they're trained to insert uh, the medication in your spine under circumstances of moving. And so that's not really true. Um, and I think what's going on in the UK, and, and this speaks to this entire natural birth movement and a difference between the United States and the UK, um, is that doctors don't attend the birth of women in the UK, midwives do, um, which has to do with this entire kind of history of natural birth, midwives, second wave feminism, and this I, this way in which the the there was a cultural outcry for um, less medical interventions and more kind of return to the roots of like the the feminine realm of midwives. and so midwives are staffed at every hospital and that's who attends the birth. And so it seems to be this interesting thing where the midwives are discouraging you from getting the pain relief that's sort of the realm of the biomedical facility, whereas I, I mean I would argue if you, A midwife is less useful if you have pain relief because much of what the midwife does is ease pain management in natural birth. And so it's like this way in which there's a culture of midwives sort of cautioning you away from
0: Uh, having pain management. Question and statement. Does it say when the doctor intervenes or comes in or uh, does it not say that at all?
1: No, doctors are only used, if I'm understanding correctly from these two articles that I've cited, doctors are only used if it's medically necessary. So maybe if a baby was breech or if you need to do a cesarean, um, the, the kind of the, the approach to childbirth in the UK is completely different from here. You have an attending midwife um and and so that i think is a major difference and could be the reason why only 31% of women are getting epidurals in the UK and these reports came out in march where women are saying i'm getting refused an epidural i've asked for an epidural and i'm being told i can't have one
0: that would be my nightmare to go into a hospital into a labor setting i knew from the beginning i wanted pain management i wanted an epidural it was in my birth plan i knew i wanted it and for someone to look at someone and say I'm sorry XY and Z you can't have this epidural you can't um be alleviated of this pain like I that's my nightmare. I I can't imagine that. I'm so sorry to those women. That's terrible.
1: And um I think it's really interesting because um it's the whole culture of it um of of kind of reengaging in midwifery is really a very feminist move. So I, was, I, I read this really great article. Um, it's called Gender Expectations, Natural Bodies and Natural Births in the New Midwifery in Canada. Um, and so uh, what, it, what it points out, and this is true in the United States as well, the early part of this narrative, um, is that in the 19th century, midwives are the ones who aided in birth. Uh, You you had midwives, sometimes they were family members who had sort of picked up kind of this uh, female ancestral knowledge of how to give birth and how to deal with complications, how to position the body, that it was this very localized female knowledge in the 19th century. But in the 20th century, as the medical profession rises, um, and of course, it goes kind of without saying that the medical profession in the early 20th century is male, um, uh, they create this narrative around midwives as being unclean, um, as not having standard knowledge um, and as dangerous. And so the the hospital is relocated as the site for birth uh, away from the home. And so it was this domestic female sphere that happened in the 19th century. But in the early 20th century, it becomes medicalized. And by the way, therefore, um, a commodity, right? Uh, mom and baby become things that can be... Uh, charged um and it becomes male um and you know in the early parts of the century you know there's uh you know really problematic you know twilight pain mitigation where you don't even know if you gave birth but then what happens in the 1970s along with second wave feminism is there is a movement to reinvest in midwives as holders of knowledge and so it's this feminist act in the 70s where it's like. We need to understand that midwives have knowledge that doctors do not, that medical practices and interventions are not the only way. And there's a lot of really great knowledge that we have that we've kind of stamped out. Then the problem of that is, is you've created this kind of false dichotomy of natural birth versus medical birth and made it so that. Um, you know, one is better than the other, which we kind of talked about at the top of this hour that creates this kind of um, shaming narrative of which one you're supposed to do. Um, Whereas I think a kind of blended approach is appropriate. Um, Or, you know, also recognizing that (laughs) I I just think it's very where it's like many of the critiques of my family members of a medical birth is this kind of critique of Uh, You know, it's a capitalist one where it's like they just want to make money off of you. You know, um, inductions are more money. Cesareans are more money. Um, And I think that's all valid and true. um, But that's also to pretend like doulas and midwives aren't their own industry as well. They aren't doing it for free. Um, There's absolutely um, an incentive for that industry to say that it's better uh, as well. Um, And so, so let's not pretend that these midwives are all doing this out of the kindness of being women. And we're all just like, you know, holding hands and having a baby together, that's 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 bullshit as well. And that's that's like interesting because that's what happened in the UK and in Canada, where midwives became installed in hospitals and subsidized by the government. So it used to be in Canada that if you wanted a midwife, you'd have to pay for it out of pocket. That's definitely the way it is in the United States. But that's subsidized now. Um, And so they've tried to do this blending. um, And but then you have these kind of interesting scenarios, like I discussed earlier in the UK, where it's like, Well, are the midwives logic and culture of natural birth being best um, taking over the patient's own um, directives for their own care? Um, Because because I mean, I would argue that, you know, I, the lady doing this thing, should have the kind of final say over what interventions are made on me and what interventions aren't. Um, Of course, with any kind of medical knowledge known.
0: That's interesting. I wonder, you know, because midwives in the United States are an additional expense. And I briefly, very, very briefly at the beginning of my pregnancy, like looked up what a doula or a midwife would be if I wanted to hire one. And you're right. It ain't cheap. It's very expensive to hire somebody to come in and coach you and be with you for this entire delivery. Is it covered at all by insurance? Do you know? No idea.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I doubt it. Is.
0: Agree. I uh, it'd be something to look into. I really don't know, but uh, yeah, I agree. I doubt it because is it is it a uh, medical uh, blah, blah, blah. necessity? Thank you. Yeah. No, you do not need one. If midwives were provided in U.S. hospitals, would more women choose natural birth?
1: It's a it's a great question because. Is it also, is it something culturally American where we are less inclined to undergo pain um, and we want that pain mitigated and that's why? Or is there some truth to this theory that I have that a culture of midwives creates a culture that prizes natural birth? Um, Yeah, I don't know. I know that the rates are rising. I know that, I, this was the way my doctor put it to me. And this is something I've said to you when we've talked about this. Is my doctor said, Would you get stitches without a lidocaine injection to numb the area? And I said, No. She said, So why would you go through childbirth without pain management? And it just like suddenly hit me where it was like, I. There's This is also something that that woman brought up um, in the article that started our, uh, the blog that started our conversation, Nicole Christensen. She said, there. there's no rhetoric around like, oh, good for you. You got your stitches without pain medication. Oh, good for you. You got your tooth pulled and you didn't have any Novocaine. You're such a champ. That doesn't exist around other sorts of injuries in our culture, but it does exist around childbirth. That there's this sort of... Um, you are impressive, and you are. I mean, it's very it, to go through that without any pain management. I mean, I have to give it to you. Uh, I just wonder why, though, we are valuing going through that pain when we don't value it in other places in our culture.
0: Yeah, I one hundred percent agree. Interesting. I, while you were talking, I brief. I googled really quickly. And I wanted to look up the risks of epidurals because, um I mean, my doctor never presented them to me because she knew that's what I wanted. And uh this is from Hopkins. And it just says sleeping problems, anxiety, menstrual changes, water retention. I can agree with the water retention. Oh my God, was I swollen after labor, but there was 31 hours of IV fluids or like you know, 25 hours, whatever, of IV fluids. So, you know, whatever. Um, And then it says bleeding and then there's possible nerve damage. I'm not saying there aren't complications after having an epidural. I'm sure women experience complications. I know uh, numbness, like prolonged numbness in the area was something I heard of. Again, like Liz said, I give every woman who does natural childbirth a big Pat on the back, good job. I I can't fathom doing it. It's not something I personally wanted to do, um, and I don't think I'll ever want to do that. But um, going back to the original thing, shaming somebody for choosing an epidural is incorrect. It's you know, there's no reason for that. Yeah, just to
1: add, just to add on to this like conversation about like risks of epidurals. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because my doctor i mean clearly very pro epidural like she basically as i said made an argument for me to get an epidural like why would you not um which the analogy of like having stitches was really effective and convinced me um and when i asked her i said well but aren't there risks with an epidural because that's what i heard again from family members that were trying to convince me to not have an epidural um and she said no her her response to me in the medical uh, context was, no, there are no risks. I was like, not to me. She was like, no. And I was like, not to the baby. No. And so it was just this kind of foreclosed conversation of there are no risks, which again, it's like, there is a critique to be made of the power of the medical establishment that just like creates kind of truth, because it's not totally true that there's no risks. Um I think the risks that you actually experience and the ones I actually experienced are not a big deal. Like I found this was um from the NHS. Uh, again, I, I was doing a lot of UK research today because of the huge epidural difference. Um I found but the the side effects they list are um temporary loss of bladder control. Yes, I had a catheter for hours. Um itchy skin I was. I was like scratching my legs like nobody's business. Um And feeling sick, headaches, I didn't have any of that. And low blood pressure, my blood pressure was um, totally stable. Um, So those are small risks of the thing. The larger risks are um, pretty slim. So the idea of nerve damage, I found this from the Guardian. um, There is a one in 10,000 chance of nerve nerve damage. Um, And then the other big one that's discussed is spinal infection. And that's a one in 250,000 risk. So it wasn't fully true for my doctor to say, no, there are no risks. But the risks are so slim where it's like, okay, when we're thinking about cost-benefit analysis and the choices we make as patients in a medical context, that's a risk I'm willing to take. Um, it's, It's very low in any case. Uh, yeah you see the you see the point of like a culture of midwives kind of pushing back against a medical establishment that says these are the things um but when you kind of unpack it more I mean I was also looking at like epidurals and then there's some there's some stuff that is just contradictory like I I, I found two studies that looked at epidurals and back pain um and one found uh, that there was no relationship between prolonged back pain and an epidural and then there was another study that said there was yeah there were two studies and um yeah they had conflicting things so i i think as with many things you don't fully know you don't always fully have the data Um, and so, so it's, it's good to have those conversations. And that is something where I do wish I would just feel better about my doctor if she didn't just tell me, no, there are no risks and had a more nuanced discussion with me about what those risks are. I still would have chosen the epidural knowing what I know now. Um, but just as a sort of consumer of medicine, I appreciate being informed about the decisions that I'm making.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Going back. I kind of want to like circle back to something you said way at the beginning of this, and you said that um, looking back, you don't know if you would have chosen induction. Um, you know, because of all the complications past forty-two weeks and da 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 da. Um, do you want to discuss that a little more? Sure. I uh,
1: I um. So the my main problem with. I have two things, I guess, with induction. One was my, you know, labor is much longer when you have in, induced labor than when you have um, natural going into labor of the baby's own volition. So I wouldn't have been there for as long as I was. Um, and so to me, there's, there's some sort of positive about not being there 29 hours. Um, the other thing is, Um, I found some really interesting information about, um, I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Nagel's Rule. It's spelled N-A-E-G-E-L-E, if you'd like to Google it. Um, Nagel's Rule is how we come up with um, due dates. And it's really antiquated. So it was created in the 1800s by a German um, and it's your last menstrual cycle plus 280 280 days, that's how they determine your due date. And it seems that a more kind of um, appropriate approach in our contemporary moment would be looking at things like what is the actual average of when a woman gives birth in the population. Like, let's actually look at, well, when are you giving, when are most women giving birth? First time, second time, et cetera. But that's not the number that we use. Um, there's also issues with the, with the um, menstrual, last menstrual plus 280 because different women have different um, menstrual cycle lengths. So that's presuming a normalized 28 day cycle when many women do not have a 28 day cycle. And so when you actually look at different data, um, the Nagel's rule, and again, I think I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, is uh, three days too early. And so my, if if that's true, my due date, your due date is kind of, um, you know, and everyone says, you know, the due date isn't real. And so we simultaneously put so much pressure on the due date, um, where it's like, after I was overdue, everyone's like, oh my God, you're overdue. What's going on? Are they going to induce? And it was automatically this conversation about induction where it's like, but we also are aware that when you ask people in your family, where no one's born on their due date. So why are we putting so much importance on this date? Um, and also the other really hilarious thing about Nagel's rule is that it's partly informed by the fact that um, in the Bible, it says that Christ was born in 10 lunar months, which works out to nine calendar months. So that's part of Nagel's math equation for um, it's it's based on Jesus. Um, so I, it's also really um, hard science, as we know. Um, so I, I guess my issue was I wanted if 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 this due date is so arbitrary why are we putting so much weight on conforming to it um and that's that's like again that's a question of like the medical establishment having all of this power and there was this other really fascinating article i read um it's by a woman named joanna white and it's called but isn't it the baby that decides when it will be born Temporality and Women's Embodied Experiences of Giving Birth. And she talks about um, how due dates are this way in which either the midwife or the medical practitioner, whoever you're going to, establishes a kind of control. And um, what she called, it gives the illusion of temporal certainty. Like this idea of here's when the baby's supposed to go. Here's what it's supposed to be at these weeks. And there's this way in which the entire like measurement of your pregnancy is all related to due date and time. And it's not, but we all know it's not true. And yet, so, so it's a way in which they seem knowledgeable and can present knowledge that is, it's, it's approximate. It's not totally wrong, but it's not a hard and fast truth. And she talked about all these other ways in which kind of Time goes into birth in a way that's problematic. So like when we've been talking about 31 hour labor and 29 hour labor, um, there was this woman in her study. She did these interviews of women and um, she was told um, that her labor wasn't as long as it was because in the UK medical system, uh, labor doesn't start till four centimeters. And so it's like, but who says who? If I'm feeling contractions before four centimeters and I'm experiencing the pain of labor, but I'm not really in labor because you decided four centimeters equals starting labor, uh, it's it's kind of nonsense. And then they also point out labor rooms always have clocks. And so there's this way in which you're constantly like, oh, another hour, another hour. And you're looking at the clock and all of these things. And it's like, all of that. Creates kind of anxiety, I think, for people about well, I was supposed to have already had the baby, and it's like, but were you? Doesn't and 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 that's the 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 quote from the article that came from one of the interviews. Isn't it the baby that decides when it's going to be born? Um, who obviously has no concept of what a clock even is. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I just if I had waited another three days, maybe I would have gone into birth naturally and not had such a long and such a painful labor and it wouldn't have had to have that awful Foley bulb inserted into my cervix. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm coming from, where after reading more and thinking about it more, it's like, I think that the kind of timeline is somewhat constructed and somewhat false. Um, and I might have made different decisions um, if I had thought about that.
0: So my question for you is because you were over your 40 weeks, you know, quote unquote due date, um, were you getting regular ultrasound checks with like fluid and growth? She's nodding her head yes. So what I thought about while you were talking is I do wonder rather than focusing on this kind of arbitrary 40 week system that is outdated and inaccurate and could possibly lead to other complications with mothers being induced early or things like that. You know, what if we as a medical society or system went to more of an approach of, I don't want to say like continuous ultrasounds, but something along the lines of like more ultrasounds during your pregnancy so you're checking size and you're checking fluid and you're checking position you're checking all these other things rather than having this number in the back of your head you know you're going to hate 40 weeks on July 3rd it's more so oh it looks like you know you're about 38 weeks give or take um you know and focusing more on size or position or just, you know, you're going to see that the baby has flipped and the baby is dropping. You know, you're going to see these very visual things. Um, And as far as I know, there's no complications with additional ultrasounds to the mother or for the baby. But, you know, you would have to argue that it could be more expensive. And some people might not want that invasive of a pregnancy, quote unquote. But um, I don't know, just something to kind of think about rather than focusing on this 40-week system we've had this entire time that I don't even know if it really makes sense anymore, if we could adapt a different approach.
1: No, I think you bring up really good points because it's like when I went in for those, um, because I always, you know, considered post-term and I went in for ultrasound and the non-stress test to make sure that um, the placenta was still adequate to um, support her and that she wasn't getting too big um, and that her heart rate was normal. All of those tests, baby Margo passed with flying colors. So, right, if there was like a, okay, you don't have enough water, um, therefore we're going to induce, that would be like, okay, there's a medical reason I feel good about kind of tricking nature and speeding up time and just saying okay let's do it um but that wasn't the case and so I mean I don't think that the baby's harmed I I mean I don't know is there some deep Freudian scar that she's going to carry now forever because she was induced I, I I doubt
0: it um something I told you when we were first talking about this podcast and you brought it up because you said that your doctor was on call that night mm-hmm. or that day. So that was part of the reason why you wanted to do it. And you ultimately missed her. I ultimately missed mine as well. Uh, my OB hadn't taken a vacation in two years. And of course the week I go to be induced, she goes on vacation. I'm like, okay, that's great. Uh, my doctor was great. He, you know, whatever, but I, I wanted mine, you know, I wanted my original doctor anyway. So. Uh, I'm going to look into this. I feel like the whole, uh, everything I say is I I read this one time and I can't remember, but I heard this one time years and years and years ago. And I think it was a documentary. I'm going to try my hardest to find it. But it was this whole conspiracy theory about United States and increased induction and increase in um, scheduling cesareans because, you know it's a money maker it's more time in the hospital it's more um interventions it's more medical procedures it's you know it benefits the medical industry it's all about money and it's great for the doctors because they can schedule vacations they can schedule their you know to say okay so Emily Liz are both coming in I know I'm going to have two people in labor great i can schedule myself you know and so I read this and I was like, ooh, this is so juicy. I want to talk about this so bad. And then everything I found about it is not true. Um, It may have been true when whatever this is that I'm talking about was published. Um, However, now it is not true. So the article I found was called Maternal and Newborn Outcomes with Elective Induction in Labor at Term. Um, It was by the American Journal of. Obstetrics and gynecology. And the whole point of this study was uh, to compare outcomes for electively induced births at or above 39 weeks gestation with those who were not electively induced. And the conclusion of this whole thing was elective induction of labor at 39 weeks gestation is associated with a decrease in cesarean birth in first time moms, first time women, and decreased pregnancy related hypertension and increased time in labor and delivery. Um, And the study even states how to use this information remains the challenge because the whole idea behind I Now Remember was a documentary was that, you know, the medical industry is a moneymaker and um, having women purposefully induced and purposefully scheduled for cesareans um, will bring more money into the hospital. So the stance now of the ACOG is when a woman and her fetus are healthy, induction should not be done before 39 weeks. Baby born babies born at 39 weeks have the best chance at healthy outcomes compared with babies born before 39 weeks. When the health of a mother and her fetus are at risk, induction before 39 weeks may be recommended. So although um this again, documentary that um, I'm remembering was on Netflix, I don't know if it's still there, states that um, it's all this big conspiracy that um, the ACOG and other um, medical professionals are pushing for inductions, inductions, inductions. That may have been true at the time. I know it was a little bit of an older documentary, but it seems like now at least um, inductions or at least elective inductions are... um, pushed less frequently i just i feel like anecdotally
1: i know a lot most people i know have been induced you've been induced i've been induced a coworker i talked to had been induced um oh and then my other friend was induced because of coronavirus where they were worried that they were going to change the rules in the labor and delivery ward and that her husband wouldn't be able to be there so she scheduled it before which didn't end up happening But that was the, um, reason she told me why they scheduled the induction. Um, but, um, yeah, it's interesting because all of those like money associations and like ease of doctor things with induction, um, I found some interesting correlations with that and cesareans. So, um, the Atlantic, uh, in 2019 had an article, why the C-section rate is so high, um, and they pointed out, it was written by um, a doctor and an economist, and they pointed out that in the U.S., doctors get paid more for C-sections. And they also had this really interesting study from the Association of Obstetric, I'm sorry, it's, um, the the title of the study is Association of Obstetric Intervention with Temporal Patterns of Childbirth. And what they looked at was the daily time of C-sections and C-sections spike around the morning, right before doctors are supposed to go to their office hours, around lunchtime when they're supposed to go on break, and right at the end of the day before they're supposed to go home. And so they, they weren't making the argument that like money and these doctor schedules mean you're going to have a C-section. They were very careful to, to you know not make that giant claim, but what they're saying is that when you're looking at like giant populations of data um and you're seeing these statistical anomalies it suggests that perhaps these things are soft pressures that play into the decision to have a cesarean and have that intervention um that and and the interesting thing with money is they looked at um uh, uh, uh there was a, this was another study published in the american journal of health economics and um, the higher the price differential at the hospital um, between C-section and vaginal delivery, um, the more C-sections there were. So when there was only a $420, when there was a $420 difference, uh, there was a 12% increase in C-sections. When at other hospitals with other kind of insurance plans or Medicaid or whatever it was, when the increase was five thousand eight hundred and five dollars between vaginal to C-section, there was a thirty-one percent increase in uh, C-sections. Um, so this is the raw data. I don't think any doctor would ever say, "Yeah, I, I do C-sections," because and but it it's what it's demonstrating is that when you look at this aggregate giant data. The more expensive a C-section is, the more likely you are to get it. And so something's going on there.
0: That's incredibly interesting. And that really kind of worries me because I looked up like risks of C-sections and things like that. And like, I feel like something that's interesting, especially in the United States could be different elsewhere, but like C-sections are very much just like, okay, you had a C-section bye. like, you know, you may spend an additional day or two in the hospital because you just had major abdominal surgery. Um, But women are just kind of like sent on their way with some Motrin and it's just like, okay, no heavy lifting for a couple weeks. You just had major abdominal surgery. Okay, bye. You know, and uh, that's insane to me. I don't, uh, there's no additional care. I mean, other than your follow-up, like your six-week follow-up with your gynecologist or your OB you know, afterwards, there's no additional, like, post-surgery follow-ups or anything like that. Like, it just kind of blows my mind that women are just like, okay, you just have this surgery which has, you know, a chance for injury to your bladder or bowel, um, development of infection in your uterus, development of blood clots in legs. Um, Not to openly say, but to more or less openly say that, yes, I'm going to... Schedule a C section because I make more money or it's more convenient for my schedule. Like, how, what is the, um, are you really looking out for your patient? Are you really looking out for the welfare of the patient and the child? I also read something that, um, there is a more likely chance that babies will have respiratory issues with a C section versus a vaginal birth. Um, I read that too. Yeah. I'm not going to even try to pronounce what it's called, but it's because, um, while the baby is going through labor, it's like exposed, like it's getting rid of fluid that's in its lungs, um, because it's getting ready to be born. And then the actual delivery process squeezes a lot more of that fluid out of their lungs. But yeah, with a C-section, that's not, they just kind of, okay, you're coming into the world. So they're more likely to have infections and possible NICU time. And I mean, that almost seems like negligent to just be like, I'm going I'm to schedule a C-section because of, you know. I've got an hour for lunch. So come on in, I'll cut your baby out. And then I'll send you on your way in two days. Like, uh, that's a whole other thing. But yeah,
1: yeah, totally. And it's like, again, I don't think any doctor, I think these are like soft pressures that on, like, I don't think any doctor would openly say I do that. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's subtle kinds of things that are affecting the massive numbers. Because when you look at the statistical population of the United States um, and, and labor and deliveries, um, a third of, of, of deliveries are C-sections. Whereas the world health organization recommends that in terms of what is a medically necessary intervention um, should be around 10 or 15% of right. births. And so we're high. And so again, it's like, it's again, back to that dichotomy of the midwife versus the medical complex. I get it. I completely respect this idea that there is a lot of um, kind of shady stuff going on in in the medical complex that would uh, make people rethink having their child in that context. Again, though, I don't I, I don't see why we can't have a more appropriate blending that doesn't result in, you know, shame because you did anything medical or Western
0: um agreed agreed and um as women in general I mean we're talking very much about like the medical industry and everything but like you know women in general we're as we mentioned as Liz mentioned we're very uh separated and we're very much like team natural team not natural team epidural and that's not fair and that's not the way it should be. And yeah, there should be some kind of blending of the two and you shouldn't feel the the mom shaming. I feel like we're just going to forever come back to the topic of mom shaming because it's so prevalent in today's society and being a mom today. Like you're constantly going to be shamed for something. And right now it's epidural versus natural. Like, you know, women who get epidurals are seen as weak, women who don't get epidurals are seen as hippy dippy weirdos. Like we can't win either way. Um and realistically and honestly, it's none of your business if I get an epidural. It's none of your business what I do with my body and what I choose to do um with the birth of my daughter. It's what I wanted to do. It's my body, it's my choice. It's you know not to do that, but it is. Um It's something that, honestly, we probably shouldn't be commenting on, period. Like, I don't think it's acceptable to be commenting on other people's birth stories, maybe even at all, which, you know, might not be great for this, because we want you to comment and be part of this conversation. But, like, realistically, is it, you know, is it really socially acceptable to even comment on a woman's choice to have an epidural or not? not really.
1: No. Yeah. I think the best thing that you can do is say, you know, what did you do for your birth? Um, You know, and, 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 you know, I I, I support what you did and 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 your decision Um, and, and to validate that all births are still transformative life-changing experiences. Um, It's just, just support what people did and this this idea this is something that you see in kind of more um accepting um spaces where people say all births are different all births are the individual and like your first and also your first birth is not going to be the same as your second birth like they're all different and just accepting that that is okay um is is i think the appropriate way to handle these things and and uh yeah i just i don't think I, i agree with you completely
0: uh, okay. Anything else you want to talk about? No, no, okay. Uh, yeah, so that's it for this week. Make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at seven day work week pod. Um, we're also on podbean.com at the seven day work week, so you can subscribe there or you can subscribe on YouTube. No, YouTube. Oh my god, not YouTube, iTunes. Hello. Uh, You can subscribe on iTunes and uh, listen to us there. And uh, just to add, Podbean is where we put all of the
1: um, references to um, the research that we've done because we are really committed to making this uh, kind of scholarly approach to a discussion of um, parenting. Um, So if you'd like to follow up on any of those sources or read them yourself, they're all linked there.
0: So, yeah. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. See you next week to talk about...
1: Uh, are we doing postpartum?
0: We are doing postpartum. Yeah. Okay, next week is postpartum. Cool. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.